Thanks, Callum. Yeah, I have now read two comic books, because that's what Callum lent me. And um, yeah, I've seen a few comic book films, so I wanted to read a book. Um, and I liked the one that had lots of references to the uh, 17th century. <laughs> so just in case you were slightly worried that he was getting a bit popular culture, the one that had lots of in-jokes about the Elizabethan period, that's the one I particularly enjoyed. <laughs> Uh, we'll, have, we'll have another great pop culture reference a little bit later on as well, so you can look forward to that. Um, you want to just hold that just in case? I... And it's, one of the great things about summer um, is that there's people visiting us uh, from afar who have been part of Kings and are just like, well, it's the summer, I can come back again. So it's so good to see you. Uh, if that's you, uh, there's people I, I see who have been on submarines recently, who have been at CERN laboratories recently, uh, who have been to London recently, but now... <laughs> You're back here, you're back in Edinburgh, or at least visiting, and it's so good to see you. We hope you have a great time uh, with us. And if you are just visiting us today, you're like, hey, I'm just in Edinburgh, I thought I'd come along to a church. Hey, well done. What a great choice to actually come and worship God uh, in a different place. And we hope that God blesses you and speaks to you uh, whilst you're with us today. Uh, to let you know what's going on, if you are new, we're continuing a preaching series from the book of Joshua, and we are looking at what it means to be people who believe God and do what he has called us to do, and that is primarily to tell people about Jesus. And when we tell people about Jesus and they respond to him, we teach them how to follow him in community. Um, that's a very basic version of what it is that God has called us to do. There's then loads of different ways in which that works itself out for each one of us, but that's the essence of it. And today, we are going to be looking at the role that the Ark of the Covenant has to play in all of this. To avoid any confusion, we're going to be talking about this Ark being carried around a lot. It's not Noah's Ark, okay? <laughs> That's not this Ark. You're going to hear about people carrying it. If you have a picture in your head of a massive boat, it's going to sound even stranger than what actually happened. So that's not what's going on. It's not Noah's Ark. The reason it has the same name as Noah's Ark is that they were both boxes. One was a very, very large box. One was a much more regular-sized uh, box, about four foot long, two foot high, two foot wide. Um, that's the arc that we're talking about. It is the arc pop culture reference in Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark. There it is, just behind Harrison Ford. He's just like, look at me, I'm a movie star. Behind there is, the, is a version, their version of the Ark of the Covenant. And I would play you a clip for, from it from YouTube, uh, for, um, but YouTube would stop our live stream straight away. And that's why I'm not even going to sing the song. I know that, you know, I'm, I know. No, I just can't. I just, for the guys watching at home, I'm sorry. <laughs> anyway, Joshua. Joshua, that's what we're talking about. The book of Joshua tells us how, how God's people entered the land that he had promised to give them. And they're facing the first city or stronghold that God has told them to conquer. And so if we turn in our Bibles to Joshua chapter 6, we will read what they were told to do and what they did. Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out and none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I've given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city all the men of war going around the city once. Thus shall you do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat. And the people shall go up, everyone straight before him. 
So Joshua, son of Nun, called the priests and said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Ark of the Lord. And he said to the people, Go forward, march around the city, and let the armed men pass on before the Ark of the Lord. And just as Joshua had commanded the people, the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Lord went forward, blowing the trumpets with the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord following them. The armed men were walking before the priests who were blowing the trumpets, and the rear guard was walking after the ark while the trumpets blew continually. But Joshua commanded the people, You shall not shout or make your voice heard, neither shall any word go out of your mouth until the day I tell you to shout. Then you shall shout. So he caused the ark of the Lord to circle the city, going about it once. And they came into the camp and spent the night in the camp. Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and the priests took up the ark of the Lord, and the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord walked on. And they blew their trumpets continually. And the armed men were walking before them, and the rear guard was walking after the ark of the Lord, and while the trumpets blew continually. And the second day they marched around the city once and returned into the camp. So they did for six days. On the seventh day they rose early at the dawn of day and marched around the city in the same manner seven times, It was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times. And at the seventh time, when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city, and the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall live, because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But you, keep yourself from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them... You take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. But all the silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. So the people shouted and the trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout and the wall fell down flat so that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. Then they devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, ox and sheep and donkeys, with the edge of the sword. This is God's word. Now, there was a lot of detail and instruction in there that you may have struggled to follow with, uh, but the last line may have caught your attention, and if that's particularly kind of troubling to you, we addressed this a few weeks ago uh, in a sermon called The Commander of the Army of the Lord, talking about what is and what isn't happening at that moment. Today, we are going to focus on what it means to be people who carry the presence of God. Because that's what we see happening right in the heart of this episode. So why don't we ask God to come and speak to us. Lord, we thank you that we're going to reflect on some amazing promises of yours today. And they're going to give us faith, they're going to give us hope and we're just so thankful that you are so kind to us, that you would come in the way that you have, that we might know you. And God, I pray you just give me grace to share this well and give grace to all, to all of us to hear it. Lord, whether we're familiar with this story, whether we're familiar with you, whether this is all new to us, oh God, speak freshly uh, to our ears and to our hearts and bring about change in our lives and in the world around us as a result of this. Amen. Amen. So as we look at carrying the presence of God, uh, in this story, that means the Ark of the Covenant. So what is that? Well, there's an artist's impression of it. It was a box. It was made of wood. That wood was covered in gold inside and out. Inside the box, Moses put the Ten Commandments that God had written on stone tablets. 
And they were a summary of the covenant, the relationship that God had made with Israel. And that was him saying, I'm going to be your God, you're going to be my people. That covenant is why it's called the Ark of the Covenant. Gold rings were fitted to it so that gold-covered wooden poles could carry it. It was to be carried around as the people of Israel moved around. Now, it was common at that time uh, for many people in those cultures around there to carry images of their gods. But this is not that. The ark is not an image of Israel's God. Because in the middle of it, you kind of can't quite see in that picture because the the wings are overlapping in the visual, but there is a space there. there. There's an absence. And the reason that is there is it is an emptiness that God is going to fill with his presence. The ark is where God chooses to dwell enthroned upon the cherubim. Oh, that's what those two-winged creatures are, by the way, the angelic beings, cherubim. So right there in that place, that is where heaven and earth meet. That's where God comes to dwell on the earth. It is therefore the holiest thing and the most dangerous thing to sinful humans like us. Because God's greatness and his glory are, are deadly for those who aren't glorious like him. And so the ark was usually kept in the Holy of Holies. This was a cubic chamber that was in the heart of the tabernacle, which was a, an elaborate tent uh, that God's people had to carry around uh, the presence of God wherever they went. And later when they were establishing the Promised Land, they built a temple in Jerusalem. And again, right in the heart of the temple, in the Holy of Holies, that's where the ark was placed. Almost everyone wasn't allowed anywhere near it. And yet it's the presence of God. Now, at this point in the story, when we're looking at Joshua, it plays a much more visible role than once the land was established and they then kind of put it in the temple. You don't really see it anymore. The ark led them uh, through the wilderness from Egypt and now into the promised land. It keeps going ahead of them. And the reason it goes ahead of them is because it is... It is God's presence that brings them safely into the land. It's God's presence that brings them victory. Numbers 10.35 says, Whenever the ark set out, Moses said, Arise, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered, and let those who hate you flee before you. Because where God's presence is, that's where God's will is done. And so it goes ahead of them and it brings them victory. In the book of Joshua, it was carried by priests into the flooded Jordan River. It made the water all just stop so that the whole people could come across. And then when they get to Jericho, as we've just read, it was central to all those instructions that we read about how the walls of the city were going to fall down. So there is incredible power associated with this ark. But it isn't magic, it's not mechanical. It's not that just, it can't just be used by just anyone. So in Raids of the Lost Ark, we're told an army that carries the ark before it is invincible, which is why the Nazis are after it. But the Bible's clear that's not the case. When Israel disobeyed God, having the ark did not stop them from losing a battle. And when the ark was captured by Israel's enemies, they take it away and they're like, yes, we've got this thing which clearly matters a lot to the Israelites. It does them no good whatsoever. It just causes them loads of trouble. And so in the end, they have to send it back. 
So it isn't this magic or, or mechanical thing that just whoever's got it is really strong. It doesn't work like that. Because it's all about God whose presence is there. And God is always at complete liberty. The name by which he revealed himself to Moses, Yahweh, Lord in capital letters uh, in most English Bibles, means I am who I am, and it can also mean I will be what I will be. In other words, God's saying, I set my agenda, no one else does. God has total freedom in the way that none of us do. We're all contingent on different things. Even if you think you're living an independent life, someone else almost certainly provided the food that you ate this morning or the electricity by which you were powered or whatever. God is the only one who is totally free, totally able to do what he wants. So having the ark doesn't mean God's like, oh no, I need to do what they say now. Even though he ties himself to Israel and the covenant that was carried in this ark, God's always free to do his own will. will. And eventually this means that he will let his people go into exile because they just disobey him again and again and again. And he will let the temple that they built to glorify him be destroyed. And he will let the ark disappear. Like No one knows where it went. And that's why people are always searching for it in certain films and stuff like that. But it just, it, it disappeared. And we don't know where it, no one knows what happened to it. But at the time when that was happening, one of the prophets, Jeremiah, he said, there will be a time to come when there will be such an expression of God's presence that no one will be saying, but where's the ark? So this all means that the ark is simultaneously the most precious item on earth making wherever it is the most special place on earth. And yet it doesn't matter when it gets lost because God's purposes have moved on. So that's quite strange for us. We're like, if this is special, it's special forever. And God's like, yes, it is special. And then he goes, like, right, we're done with that. And we'll see that happening when the new covenant's made. We'll look at that in a minute. But before that, what does is, what, is what we read show us about carrying God's presence? Now, I don't know, maybe you felt this as you were hearing it. I was almost, as I was saying it, like, this is a lot of detail to carry in our heads. What is going on? Well, this is Israel cherishing the presence of God. And people who do this will be used by God to do amazing things. So we're told in a previous Old Testament book that Israel's entire camping arrangement, so they didn't live in houses at this point, they all lived in tents, they were travelling, there were loads and loads and loads of them, which meant there were loads and loads and loads of tents. And if you've camped, but you're like, just make it as simple for me as possible, that's not what happens for the people of Israel. The entire campsite is arranged with the ark right in the middle. The tabernacle, that tent, is the central point, and everyone else has to fit around it. And then when they march around Jericho, at this point, the ark was at the centre of the company. So there are some soldiers ahead of them, there are some soldiers behind it, but it's right there in the middle. That's not because it needs to be kept safe from all those soldiers, it's because it's saying, this is the central aspect of our life. And there are trumpets playing just in front of it, and trumpets do many things, but one of the things they do is they announce a king's arrival. So that's exactly what's happening. The priests are playing those trumpets saying, a king is here. Maybe people from Jericho are looking over the walls being like, I didn't didn't see a king. They're like, right there. Right there, enthroned on that ark. You you probably can't see him, but he's there. 
So they cherished God's presence by placing him at the centre of everything. And they also did so by doing what he said. As I've said, having the ark didn't guarantee Israel victory. Believing God did. Hebrews 11 verse 30 says, By faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. That faith was expressed by obeying what God had said, by following his instructions. There's this massive city, and God says, I want you to walk around it a lot. Now, if you're a certain type of pragmatic person, you're like, that is not going to make any difference to a city's walls. Like, we can't, like, even if we were, like, really jumping up and down, it's not going to make a wall. So I'm not sure that's a great plan. I say, it sounds a bit spiritual, to be honest. I think we just need to get a bit more practical about this. They don't do that. They obey what God said. And, I mean, there's a lot to do. They're told, march around the city once a day. Don't say anything. Priests, seven of you, blow the horns. Do this every day for six days. Don't do anything else. On the seventh day, do it seven times. At some point, there's going to be a loud horn blast. When you hear the loud horn blast, that's when you're to shout. When you shout, the walls will fall down. You can't just then run anywhere. You need to run straight ahead of where you are. And then it gets to that moment, doesn't it, where Joshua says, right, guys, shout, because God's going to give you the city. So you expect the next line to be like, so they shouted. But Joshua says, oh, by the way, don't forget, spare Rahab, and don't take anything for yourself. And he spends quite a while doing that. He's like, Joshua, this is, this is a dramatic moment. Don't give me more admin. <laughs> but he's not. What he's doing is saying, this is a victory of faith. This is a victory of obedience. When we do what God says, he will give us the victory. And when we do what God says, he will get the glory, not us. It's the other really important thing about this. I wonder what it felt like if you were one of the people marching around the city. Did it one day, okay. Doing it again tomorrow, okay. Can we mixing it up a bit? No, okay. Round again. Round again. Okay, I've done this for six days now. Seventh day. We're going to walk around it more. Okay, well, I know how to do that, so that's okay. Round and round and round they go. Has anything changed? In the natural, no, nothing's changed. Soldier, well, I guess maybe the soldiers are a bit tired. The priests might be a bit out of breath. Maybe some of them are feeling a bit awkward. Maybe some of them were feeling very excited. But even that excitement wasn't going to change anything. Because you look at the walls of Jericho and they're utterly unchanged. But because they were believing God, because they were walking by faith and not by sight, as soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout. So they weren't like, oh, I guess we need to do that. No, no, they were ready. They shouted a great shout. And the wall fell down flat so that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. Only by carrying and cherishing the presence of God did they do this thing. And so only God got the glory. Now, as we read through the rest of the book of Joshua, not every battle is like this. In fact, this is the only battle that's exactly like this. Some of them involve, again, things that you think, there's no way this will cause an army to be defeated, but they do. Others, they are just fighting like an army. But what's happened here, this is the first battle. And it sets the tone for everything to follow. And that tone is that every victory they win has been won by God. So however they do it, it's God who has given them the victory. 
He's really clear on this in all sorts of ways. Again and again and again. And at this first battle, he's saying, you trust me and you win. So it is with us. God sometimes speaks to us in a prophetic word, in an amazing faith-giving coincidence, in a supernatural opportunity, does something dramatic. We feel like, wow, God has already spoken. Now's the time to act. Now's the time to go. Let's do this. And that's right. And there are also some times where we have discussions and we make plans and budgets and we recruit volunteers and we give information and invite people to things. And it doesn't feel as exciting. But if it's coming from a place of faith, God will use it. Those things are all legitimate. God's happy to use them so long as they aren't what we're putting our trust in. So long as what we're putting our trust in is the God who wants to bring about a victory through us. God's people are primarily a miraculous people of his presence. And even ordinary actions are in the service of an extraordinary mission and even natural things that we do have supernatural impact. Now that takes believing. If God would just do a dramatic thing, then it'd be fine. Well, maybe. But actually, either way, there's faith involved. Either way, we're trusting God in that moment. So, what's changed since Joshua's day and what has stayed the same? Let's look at the new covenant now. So one of the things that the Ark of the Old Covenant does is it visualizes the gospel to us. So the thing that's in the Ark that's being carried around is the Ten Commandments. That's God's righteous law about how to live. It's it's telling us what he's like, but it's also telling us how we are to be like. And, hey, we all fail those every day. Don't we? Like the first one, that's enough. If you honour the Lord your God, no, maybe not. Okay, so another day in which you failed them. All right. You don't love God as you should. You don't love those around you as you should. So you're in trouble. That is our problem. And the ark carries that. Almost those words, they just, every time you read them, you think, I just, I know I, I, I probably haven't done them today. I definitely didn't do them yesterday. I'm not that confident about tomorrow. So the, the, the gospel says, yeah, you shouldn't be confident in yourself. And yes, actually, you are in trouble. But the ark also shows us God's gracious solution. Because that slab of gold on the top is called the mercy seat. And the mercy seat was the place where once a year the high priest would come in uh, to that holy of holy place and he would be carrying with him blood from animals that had been sacrificed as substitutes for all the people, for all the wrong that they had done. And God said, rather than kill you for what you've done, you kill an animal in your place and the priest then takes that, brings that into the presence of God and says, blood has been shed for what they did wrong. Because they bring that to the mercy seat, they receive the mercy of God. This was the Day of Atonement. It's the annual event when God dealt with the people's sins justly, but not by punishing them. Now, if this is starting to sound a bit like Jesus, it should. Okay? So Jesus and Jesus' relationship to the law. He carries the law in himself, doesn't he? No one knows it better than he. 
And he doesn't just live it perfectly, which would be more than enough for most of us. He also teaches it truly to people around him. And so that sense in which the ark carries the law of God, so Jesus carries the law of God within him. He is then also the atoning sacrifice. He is the one whose perfect blood pays for all of our sins. The animal sacrifices, I mean, they're just signs. They're signs pointing towards the ultimate bloodshed of Jesus. When he died on the cross, God was punishing him for our wrongdoing so that we could be reunited with God. And that means that we can come into God's presence. What people could never do in the Old Covenant. Only one priest, once a year, petrified and well-prepared, could come in. Now, because one who carried the law and made atonement has done all those things perfectly, we can come into his presence. And we come in as righteous as Jesus. So the ark, even though it's from the old covenant, it points to the new covenant. It's also, as I said, the place where heaven meets earth. And that's what Jesus is too. Through what he does, he does good things, he does true things, he does miraculous things. And often when those things happen, people say, wow, the kingdom of heaven is here. Jesus says, that's right. But it's not just the things that he's doing. It's who he is, because he has come from heaven to earth, and he unites them in his divine nature and earthly flesh. So that that point between the cherubim, that most holy of places where God came onto the earth, suddenly it's a walking, talking, healing, laughing, loving person. It's Jesus. Although he has returned to heaven with his resurrected earthly body, He has promised to send his presence, his Holy Spirit, to all his people. And that's what he does. The Holy Spirit isn't something, if you're a Christian, that he's he's not over there. He's within every one of God's people. And so all those who belong to Jesus, all those who have put their faith in Jesus, carry the presence of God with them even more profoundly than the Israelites did when they carried the ark around Jericho. And if that's the case, the walls that we face can fall down. So what does that look like then? What I want us to spend the rest of our time just thinking about is, so what does it look like for, for us to carry the presence of God, to cherish the presence of God. Because when Jesus gives a promise, he doesn't give a promise to the end like, oh, cool, great, so I presume that's happened. This is a promise to be claimed, to be taken hold of. So one of the ways we can think about this is by using the image in our reading. When God places the ark at the centre of his people. So think about that for yourself. What does that mean? What does it mean for the presence of God to be central to your life? and not peripheral. So, to help you think about this, I just want to tell you a bit about how God did this in my life. And some of you will have heard this before, but it's still true, and I'm grateful for it. And I'm always particularly conscious of it at summertime, because it was in the summer of the year 2000 when God did this. I mean, Jesus changed my life. I'd been going to a church like King's for a few years. I'd been invited along by some friends as a teenager, Um, But for a lot of that time, 
Um, Isaiah 29.13 would have been a good summary of my attitude. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Now, I may have known that there was a prophet Isaiah, but I certainly didn't know that or, frankly, anything about God's word. Maybe that's, I wonder if that's true for you. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. I, I came on a Sunday, possibly hungover, but I, you know, I was like, well, I'm here. Surely that counts. My heart was far from God. Jesus was, as it were, one thing in my life among many others, and certainly not the center. But then all that changed. Not in a particularly dramatic way, not in a sudden one-off moment, but over the course of a few weeks, a couple of months, I suddenly, I just had a revelation of who God was. I realized how patient and kind and good Jesus was, and how he would forgive me for how I'd been treating him, and how he would lead me into an abundant life, far, far better than anything I could ever have come up with by myself. And so realizing this just meant, I I just knew, wow, okay, everything has to change. If this is true, and I think it is, I can't go on living how I was living before. I wanted him to be the center. I knew that he had to be, but I also wanted him to be, because he changed my heart in that moment. And it was around that time I had a, a, a picture, I think I was just praying or thinking, I wasn't very good at either of those things, but I would occasionally do them. And I saw my heart as being like a, a multi-occupancy house. So I was living with six other students at the time, so that was a, a relevant image uh, for me. It's just like a narrow Victorian house, there was lots of us in it. And it felt like over the previous few years, Jesus had been one, occupi- one occupier among many, one tenant almost among many, who I, whom I had let in. And suddenly, that wasn't the case anymore. Suddenly, he had taken over ownership. My heart didn't really belong to me anymore. It belonged to him. To use terms that Joshua would have understood, Jesus had conquered me. And that meant that this house was going to change. There were some people in it, actually, who needed to be escorted off the premises. There were some other people who needed uh, to come in. There were some locks that had been put on doors, particularly to keep Jesus out, that needed to be taken off. There was a lot of cleaning that needed to be done. It was a mess. There was a lot of just throwing stuff out. And amazingly, as that happened, those things just went, man, I used to really cherish this, and it's gone. And then something beautiful would be put in instead. Jesus was just, he was was bringing these new things in, but even the good things that he brought in, even the good things that were already there, they needed to be rearranged, because there was a throne room in the middle of this house now. Jesus was the center. Everything else had to move. Everything else had to change. The bad things had to go, but the good things had to be put in their place. Nothing was in exactly the same place as it was before. He'd moved everything. Some of those things changed. They were just overnight changes. I didn't even have to think about them. I wasn't very good at drinking, but I would do it a lot. I was very good at swearing, and I would do it a lot. Literally overnight, those things just stopped. Very, it, was, it took me a while to realize it. it was like, man, I just have stopped doing those things. I immediately just found giving generously just kind of easy. Other things took a lot longer 
to realize, a lot longer to learn. It was a couple more years before I actually started reading the Bible. I kind of heard that Christians did that, and the guys at the front would talk about it a lot, but I'd never done that. So it wasn't like this immediate change when everything changed, but everything did change. And of course, the house of my heart is still, it's still a doer-upper. There is still a lot of work to be done. But you know what? It turns out that Jesus doesn't mind a project, so long as he's the owner. Not a consultant, not an architect or even an engineer, the owner. That's when Jesus became the center of my life. Until that time, he'd been a part of my life. That's when I started to cherish carrying his presence because I loved him and, and wanted to be focused on him. And that's when Jesus began to use me to bless other people as well. Until that point, I, I just don't probably think I ever really did, apart from by accident, by his grace. But suddenly he was doing things. Sometimes I was consciously involved in those things. Other times he was just doing things through me. Because that's what happens when you cherish the presence of God. He is at work in you. Sometimes consciously, sometimes not consciously, but he's always at work. Maybe you have a similar story. Maybe as I'm telling you, telling this, you're like, yes, I do remember that. I know what it, that, that to first truly know the love of God and for everything in your, love, in your life to change. A bit like uh, what Guy was sharing earlier, that person, wow, this is amazing love. And when we sing Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound. You're like, yes, I remember. I'd never heard that sound before. And suddenly I was like, this is the sweetest thing. And you're like, yes, I remember that moment. And to reflect on when that happens is a wonderful thing to do. And it, it can stir our hearts again. And it, it, it still amazes me. It still deepens my love for God. It's still something I thank him for. But that, that love is not nostalgia. That love is not just like, what a great thing God did once. People of Israel, when they go to Jericho, they don't go saying, by the way, 40 or so years ago, God rescued us from Egypt miraculously. So I presume these walls are going to fall down now. now there, was a, there was a thing to do that day that cherished God's presence. There was a thing to do that day. And cherishing God's presence is a daily opportunity for us, because there's so much of his goodness to discover, and he wants to do this. But obviously the, there's, there are troubles, there are trials in life, there are trivialities. And they discourage us and they distract us. And eventually what can happen is that wonderful moment in the past becomes almost like a rebuke to us. Do you remember, remember what you were like back then? What happened? Remember how God changed you and you're so passionate for him. What happened? Or if we're not careful, we can kind of use it as a rebuke to God. Hey, I remember when you really broke into my life. What happened? I remember when you answered my prayer straight away. And things were really easy. What happened? So we can't just be like, I think a moment happened and so that will keep us going for now. No, God's calling us today to know him and to love him, and to cherish him. And although that can, there can be dramatic moments when that happens, actually a lot of the way God does that on an ongoing basis for our life is by giving us routines. 
People of God had those in the Old Testament. People of God have them in the New Testament because we need things that help us keep him at the centre. And I really just want to encourage you to use the opportunity that many of you have over the summer to do this. I know it's extremely annoying for people who have got a summer holiday to say, it's just not, it's great when summer comes around, isn't it? I know that for some of you, you're like, no, it's very intense, actually, and it's really busy. But a load of us here, and those who are like listening later because they've already gone on holiday, um, this is a moment where things aren't quite as intense as usual, where things just feel a little bit different, and when that's going on, it is a chance to refocus our attention and our affection on God. I want to set that before you as an opportunity that you have. Is he the delight of your heart? Is he the lover of your soul? If he is less than those things, and even if he is those things, he wants you to come closer to him. He wants you to know him more. So what can you do that will deepen your affection for him whilst you're on holiday or simply whilst things are a bit quieter? Because there, there are things that you can do that encourage this. So I'm just going to share some of the things that I do and I will be doing. And some of them you might be like, that sounds like a great idea. I'm going to try that. And others of you feel like, you are so weird. That would never work for me. That's fine. <laughs> but I'm going to do things that I know are going to deepen my affection for God over the coming weeks. And I want to encourage you to do the same. So we are, my family, we are heading on holiday right after the service. The car is packed, it's, at, it's parked and packed. We're going to be done here and we're going to go. And I've got a small pile of books, smaller than on previous holidays, but it's just because I'm <laughs> just, just more accurate in my expectations these days. But I've chosen books that are going to help me love God more. So they aren't about things you should do and they aren't about the state of the world. And they aren't other things like that. They aren't. I can read those books, and I can read books that are really challenging and really unpleasant in some ways at other times. But my summer reading is to increase my affection for God. So I choose books that will do that in various ways through their excellence or through their focus on God. And we've been recommending um, loads of books that can help with this, and, and the news email and on the news page of our website as well as a book list. And many of the books there can help you um, to do this. So I'm going to be reading some of those books. I am going to a theology conference. Now, I know not all of you would want to do that, but I am really excited about it because it is going to, it's, it's not a dry theology. We start by worshipping every day, and we will be looking at how great Jesus is and seeing how he's even greater than we realise. That is going to do me good. You're probably going to hear me talking a lot more about the Gospel of Matthew over the coming months afterwards because that's what the focus is on. I will be just going out into God's creation. I'll just be going out and I'll be just enjoying it and thanking him for it and praising him for it. I will be avoiding email, WhatsApp, social media, most of the news, my phone in general. Okay? Notifications are just going. I'm going to have it off for most of the time because those things do not help. I don't think they help anyone, but they certainly don't help me. And I'll be spending time with people who do my soul good. People whose love for God and whose knowledge of him encourage my own. It's been part of my summer break every year for years now to meet with three guys. Uh, we just know each other very well. We've known each other like 20, 30 years. Um, we're that old that now 20, 30 years is like a, I'm not quite sure of the distinction point. <laughs> we all want to love and serve God. And we want to help each other to do this. 
So we are going to meet, we're going to talk honestly about how life is going. We've, we've got this list of different questions, which includes things like sports personality of the year, but also, you know, what's been the hardest thing this year? How do you want to change in the year to come? What's God been saying? What's God been doing? Those kind of, a lot of those kind of questions. And we're going, to, we're going to ask and answer those questions and talk honestly about that. We're going to pray for each other. Uh, we're just going to love each other. We're going to eat together. We're obviously going to tell the same jokes that we tell every year uh, because we're boys, and that's what we do. Um, but we're going to do that, and it's going to really help me, and it's going to really help them. Now, we've known each other for a long time, but nine years ago, one of us said, one of the other guys was like, why don't we do this? Why don't we just... It's, I love you guys. You're great friends. I think we could do more with this. I think we could go away and we could answer some questions and we could pray for each other. I think it would really help us. And we all went, yeah, that sounds like a great idea. And so we did that. We committed ourselves to each other. And we learned to tell each other what was really happening. And we learned how to encourage one another. And friendships like this are life-changing and life-sustaining. So I don't, I'm not necessarily expecting a dramatic moment when I go and spend that time with those guys. But I know that it's going to increase my affection for God. So it's life-sustaining. I can give no greater evidence of how helpful this is for me than the fact that Deb will let me go away from her and our two children for two nights to make this happen. <laughs> and it's because of this that I love our running partners program uh, that we have here at King's. If these uh, encourage people to get into groups of three and just to say, hey, let's, let's talk about what's really going on. And let's really encourage one another. Let's go way beyond the surface. Let's go way beyond triviality. Let's be honest. Let's be prayerful. And these groups, God's just doing things amongst different people in these groups all the time in the moment. It's so wonderful to hear it and to see it. Um, if you don't have anything like this, maybe this summer is the moment you could begin it. Maybe you're just going to have a little bit more time. You're like, yeah, maybe I could do that. We tend to suggest three people who know each other already, but what's really important, well, well, what tends to be more important is that you're all at the same stage of life. Because then one of you isn't like, well, I remember those days. It helps to be like, yeah, I know. Yeah, I need to pray for that too. That can be really helpful. And what really you need to do is say, we're going to speak honestly, and we're not just going to talk or listen. We are going to pray. Now, I appreciate that Maybe for some of the women here, you're like, right, so you need to brand friendship to make this happen. Is that right? Well, for some of us, yes. Okay? We need to have a specific situation where we step into it and say, I'm going to do this now. For some of you, you might just do this naturally already. That's great. But for many of us, this needs to be a conscious choice. Otherwise, it won't happen. So these are some of the ways I've learned that will help me to carry and cherish the presence of God. I know the way my brain works. Reading books will help uh, with that. I know that going to a conference is going to do that. I know that being out in the countryside is going to do that. I know that by turning loads of things off my phone, that is going to help kind of do the neutral so that I can then enjoy all the good things. I know that spending time with these friends is going to do that because I'm just not prepared for summer to be something where we stop. Most people say, oh, summer holiday, I get to stop. But if you get to stop, and let's say, you, I don't know, it doesn't work like this, but your, your passion for God levels are at 30%, and you just stop for two weeks, do you think they're going to rise? I'm not sure they will. But if in that moment you aren't just stopping, but you are being restored, and you are refocusing your attention and your affection on God, then he will do things. And then you find our hearts enlarged, and we love him more. 
So maybe none of those make any sense to you, but you're like, man, I know that when I do that, I tend to love God more. So do that. And as we do these things, as we cherish God's presence, we become better tuned in to what God is saying. And we're then able to hear him and respond. Maybe he'll say things like, march around the city for six days, and then seven times on the seventh day. If you are cherishing his presence, you'll be like, well, okay, I know you've said that, so I guess I'm going to do that. Or, it's just a normal thing. It's like, I want you to do that, but I want you to do that with faith. You're able to, because you're with him. Maybe it's a new thing you've never done before, or simply more of the same things. God's like, I just want you to try that again. I just want you to very simply say to that person, how are you? And have more than just like, "Uh uh-huh, as your reply. Whatever that is, God's saying, when I'm with you, strongholds can fall down. When I'm with you, the kingdom of God can advance. And that's what we want, isn't it? Joshua and the people of Israel faced a stronghold that they couldn't get into. The same is true for us if you're a Christian, a follower of Jesus today. We share the good news with people whose hearts and minds are shut up to him. We live in and among cultural structures which are opposed to him. It is impossible for God's kingdom to advance through us unless he is in us and working through us. We have Jesus' promise that he will do this. But as with the conquest of Jericho, this is a promise given that we might take hold of it, act upon it, respond to it. If we will cherish his presence, if we will carry it, as Israel did the ark, right at the centre, then we'll see God work in our lives and the world around us. God wants to do that through you. One of the ways he will do that is by bringing you into a greater relationship with him, by you placing him at the center of your life. So I'd love us just to close by singing. No, I'm not going to do that, actually. We're going to pray. Sorry. Now pray. Why don't you just turn your heart towards God? We've only got a moment for most of us to do this. But you know the state of your heart. You know the state of your relationship with him. And many of you know that if you were to say, Jesus, I want to know you more, I want you to be at the centre, you know he would answer that prayer straight away. So I want to encourage you. Ask it. Ask him right now. whether there's hurt from confusion in the past before, whether there's guilt from all the stuff you've been doing wrong, what you've been doing instead of who you've had at the centre rather than him, whatever, you can ask him. Say, Jesus, be the centre. Oh God, won't you do that? Won't you do that for many of us, please, right now? And Lord God, thank you, you've changed our lives. But we say it's grace that brought us safe thus far, and grace will lead us on. And so God, I just want to pray for a a summer of leading on grace.
God, we pray for life change, but we also pray for life to be sustained. Pray for those who are weary. Pray for those who are just frenzied. Uh, pray for those who are unsure that there would be habits and practices and moments over these coming weeks that would really change and sustain and grow their affection for you. God, we want to be people who carry your presence, who cherish it. We do look around us and say, how is, this, how, is this, how is any of this ever going to change? And the answer is through people who carry the presence of God, obeying God. So please, God, make us those people. Make us those people for your glory, we pray. Amen. I mean, if that's you, I'd love to encourage you to chat with someone and say, hey, I, yeah, now's the time. You, this, I've given you a context. I've given you an opportunity. You can be like, I'd love to do this. So don't miss this moment. Don't miss this opportunity. Don't miss, for those of you who, for whom life is a bit different over the next few weeks and even months, take that opportunity. God wants you to know and love him more. God bless you as you do that. A few moments, the practical team will bring refreshments out and we'd love for you to stick around and have a chat, get to know some people. Um, That's the end of our service for today. God bless you and keep you as you go.